Hello, you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. I'm John Jacob and I'm on a train going to Leeds for the Leeds Piano Competition, which you will hear in the next podcast. This podcast, number 17, is a conversation between me and composer Owen Roberts, who is part of the creative team behind the concluding work in the 14-18 now season, the UK's cultural commemoration of the World War I centenary. That work, entitled Now the Hero, is a theatrical experience set in and around Swansea. It opens the Swansea International Festival on the 29th of September. Owen has joined forces with Welsh artist Mark Rees, writer Owen Shears, and the choir Polyphony with Stephen Layton. The performance is run from the 25th to the 29th of September. In this podcast, recorded yesterday at the Southbank Centre on Monday the 10th of September, Owen discusses who and what inspired him to compose, his training at Durham University and his work with the award-winning composer Johan Johansson. Well, I mean, the project now the hero. It's it's uh, yeah. It's I mean, it's an immersive theatrical experience. Is the best way that we're describing it in general. It's it's obviously yeah. It's commissioned by fourteen eighteen now as a commemorative thing for the First World War, the centenary, obviously, at the end of the First World War. Um, and so it's, it's, I mean, Mark Rees is the, is the artist who's put the whole idea together, and he's conceived of, it's more or less a narrative of three, well, it's three narratives of war um, from different periods, one of which is a First World War era character, but there are some other, two other characters who represent war of different periods. And it's all based around, um, well, so these narratives are uh, sort of weaved in to a, very old Welsh poem by a poet called Anairin. Okay. That's my pronunciation oh, yeah. of it. That's I think great that's that you've, that you've pronounced it, and I haven't tried. I, that... If Mark was here, he could help me with that. Okay. <laughs> but, it sounds um, it sounds good enough. Yeah, I'm convinced myself. <laughs> uh, which I think is from 600 AD, and it okay. was a it was a poem about the the Battle of Cattraeth, which in which I think there were, there were around 300 Welsh um, Welsh soldiers who died in a battle. I, believe against some form of what became English people eventually. You're feeling quite nervous now. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, having to draw, exactly. draw Welsh history that you're not 100% yeah, sure about. Yeah, okay. a bit, but the, I mean, I think these are the facts. Uh, anyway, but the poem is it's incredible. For, for such an early poem about war, it has quite an open um, concept of war, is critical of war, interestingly. I think that's the, the thing that stood out for Mark about the text is that it's a... Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it glorifies the battle in a way. It talks about the heroes of the battle, but it does highlight the the tragedy, which I think is not so common. As I mean, my my knowledge of early Welsh poetry is otherwise <laughs> non-existent. <laughs> okay. um, but as far as I've heard, it's uh, yeah, it's a fairly rare thing for for there to be some criticism in that period of why are we doing this? What what's the what's the reason for battle in this in this. Uh, in the sense, yeah. Uh, and you have so, composed music for all of it, or just for one part of it? I know you've written the requiem. Yeah, the so, so that, but that's one part. Of yeah, it. exactly. So the project. I mean, it's a. If, if you were to come to the to the performance, you it, it's a piece that happens all over Swansea. So there's there's scenes in different. Begins in Swansea Bay on the beach, and then you're taken through different other scenes in different places. Uh, and in terms of the music, it culminates in a requiem, a choral requiem piece written for polyphony mm-hmm. which happens in the Brangwyn Hall um, using the organ there uh, and so that's that's one part of this of, of the like, of the journey that you go through on the, on the thing but there's music that will happen yeah so the, the t- I mean 
you were to look at the music as a one single piece of music, it does exist. Uh, the whole thing exists across the whole piece. There are, uh, there's music across all of the scenes, but then there's, there's kind of a live element in this. And that so that 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 yeah. leads me nicely on the yeah. um, the live element that you have created music for is in is in a space exactly in a physical space it's as in a opposed phys- to outdoors yeah exactly. does that yeah. make it easier for you do you think sort of i mean i mean i've written the music for the outdoor scenes as well but oh, these right, are, okay. are things that will be that will just be in the that will be happening in the space there won't be so many performers involved in those i may be making nerdy i may be making nerdy assumptions about the compositional process but my assumption is, yeah. is that if you're writing for outdoors it's probably quite difficult. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, we there are some moments in the in the whole performance that I've had to think about quite specifically in terms of what frequencies would actually travel a distance that need to that, it, that they need to travel outside and things like this. Because uh, we have some moments where sound needs to come from a from a place where the audience aren't things like this. So that's that's been one challenge of it. Um, but yeah, in terms of the process, the in the end, I've. Does that limit you, or does it enable you in terms of? Comp- it, I think composing? it enables really because it, yeah, it's a, it's a nice um, it's a nice challenge to think about what's going to work. For instance, I mean the beach scene at the beginning was a nice challenge because obviously there you have the sound of the sea. You have well, there's a road nearby which will be closed, but there will, there will be some <laughs> some uh, some other sort of road noise. There's a general like quite loud ambient sound that you wouldn't have in a concert hall to to work with. So it's about writing it. So in in the end, I've written music that. Is intended to emerge from that landscape rather than oh, okay. fight against it. Right. Like, um, so, yeah, and how so did you? I, I imagine that composers probably despise this question. <laughs> but um, how did you go about? How does one go about writing for outdoors? How did you go about writing this? That's really the question. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, it all started with the requiem. The requiem was the, was the main scene. So everything everything came from from the point of thinking about the requiem. Uh, and that means in the end that all the material that is going to happen in all the other places, the outdoor spaces and the other indoor spaces, has all been generated from uh, from material that's connected to the Requiem. So I had a session with some of the singers from Polyphony uh, in about, I think it was February or March this year. We came to London and recorded with just three singers, uh, recorded some material that was kind of early sketches for the Requiem, but weren't you know, not solid material, quite open material. Recorded that, and then I've used that as well as some recordings that we did with Johan and on my own in the in Brangwyn Hall on the organ, so I've used those recordings as source material for electroacoustic material that oh, okay. has made up. Okay. The, because I, I mean, in my background, I have electroacoustic composition is quite a big part of my background as well. So uh, I want, I mean, also was with Johan. So I, yeah, I wanted to to bring a lot of those techniques into the piece. That's also part of the requiem as well. The requiem is. Kind of elect- electronic as well as uh, as well as acoustic in the space, but the point is, yeah, the the material that came for these outside spaces came from these recordings with the singers and the early recordings with the organ, um, and then in terms of dealing with the fact it's an outside space, uh, really, it's been about yeah making sure that the the frequencies that I end up using in the electroacoustic material have the ability to travel the distances needed, but other than that. It's, it's not changed things too much. So is it, amped, is, is it amplified? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So, do you call it? Do you think of yourself as a composer or as a producer? Uh, <laughs> no, that you laugh. It's a very difficult question. Is it? Uh, why is it difficult? Well, it's not that. I mean, it, it's a thing that changes all the time. I mean, I, so I, I, I originally my background is quite traditional composition, um, but at university I ended up going off into electroacoustics and then 
since then have you been make it sound as though you found a room somewhere and you just disappeared more or less yeah I sort of did I found a room that had Trevor Wishart in it uh, (laughs) and uh, he taught me some stuff and and then from there I went off on a different direction and since then I've been doing kind of both production and composition but I mean more recently a lot more production a lot more electronic focused music to be honest and Um, where is the line you know for for somebody like me as a nerdy outsider where is the line (laughs) and when do you cross it between uh, composing and production well I mean uh, when I'm saying production I guess I'm kind of meaning composition just using electronic techniques or electroacoustic techniques actually so for me there isn't much of a line really I mean also the music that I've done that's involved um, more yeah traditional composition techniques and using scores and using acoustic instruments I've at least in the last you know, six or seven years that that has always featured some element of electronics as well. So, for me, yeah, for me, there hasn't really been that much of a line in what I'm doing, other than depending on the project that I'm on, what the, what the aims are aesthetically. In the end, the, they change, but it's yeah, it's composition. Ultimately. What was the big draw for electroacoustics? For me, because um, clearly that's important to you. It is, yeah. It, I mean, it, it was. I mean, I. So when I. I went to university uh, in Durham where I, I was taught composition by Trevor Wishart, who's, um, for those who don't know, a, a fantastic uh, kind of legendary electroacoustic composer. Um, I had him and Martin Harry, who was my sort of more uh, acoustic composition lecturer, and they, they both sort of uh, were huge influences on me. I mean, I'd been, I'd been playing a lot of quite experimental music before that, like working in free improvisation and this, this kind of area, being interested in jazz and stuff like this, and knew that, uh, yeah, I, I was looking for... I was always looking for something that was a little bit more extreme texturally, maybe, than I had been able to create with just acoustic instruments before that. Um, and when I turned up and uh, Trevor Wishart showed me his... He had a, a program that he's been working on forever called Soundloom that, that is basically a very, I mean... It, it, to go, the, on, to, go on, go <laughs> on, tell us, I want to, to know, I want to, to like, know. <laughs> to like electronic music nerds, it seems very uh, backwards almost. It's, it's more or less a, it's kind of a translation of the tape techniques that he was using in the 70s and 80s when he was at Earcam in Paris. So there's an element of nostalgia about um, Soundloom. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a bit a, like there is with the Hammond organ. Yeah, precisely. Right, and okay, it, right. it, I mean, the, things take forever, the process, <laughs> you're, like, you, you, you're looking at these grids of numbers instead of, you know... Good, on, on a, great. Yeah, it's, it's all very, like very slow and deliberate uh, and methodical and that and that's appealed to you strangely because I'm not a very methodical person okay, <laughs> in general okay. but uh, gap, but sure. yeah absolutely and it, but it, it showed me that the it, basically he the first thing that he played me that he'd done I'd heard one piece actually it was on the GCSE music syllabus at the time one of his pieces actually uh, Fox 5 but he played me a piece, the name of which I forget right now, um, that was it was a half-hour piece made from one recording of a whiskey bottle being opened, like the squeak of a cork. Oh, marvellous. And, okay, and, and, and this time. just this completely blew me away. And when you did you, how could, old were you when you heard that? It was about 18, 19 or something. You know? okay. so, so it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So obviously and, um, that had a profound effect. That had a huge effect on me, yeah, absolutely. And I guess more or less since, since that period of time, the idea of... Uh, looking inside a sound and exploding it to find the detail inside the sound that's the thing that's kind of driven more or less all the music that I've been trying to make whether it's more pop focused music which I've been doing as well or um, more orchestral stuff the, 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 the idea of looking into tiny details within the sound and 
exploding those to, to find the beauty in the in the detail. Um, yeah, that's, remi- that's actually, when key. you talk about that, I'm reminded about something I saw at Tate Modern. Yeah. Um, where uh, it's a few years ago now, and it was an artist who had packed loads of things into a shed, say. Right. And then exploded the shed. <laughs> yeah. And then actually <sighs> hung all of yeah. the thing. I'm afraid, I don't know who the artist is, I don't know what the work was. No, but I, have, I do remember I, looking at it and going, oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. I've never even considered that. Yeah. That's what hearing you talk about that makes me think of. Completely, I mean, yeah, I haven't, Im- I think I've seen some image of that that work and it blew me away as well to be honest I don't remember so actually in, in a way hearing about yeah. you having heard that piece when you were doing your GCSEs no. um, which just seemed weird to me <laughs> um, but but that's for another that's possibly I mean, for a therapy conversation GCSE, so, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't mean that I don't think that you should have done your GCSEs uh, <laughs> I um, I'm sort of struck by how actually you are perhaps living proof that by introducing um new music, contemporary music, unusual things, challenging things mm. to people of a certain age, then actually they will be respi- uh, inspired. And Absolutely. Therefore, that underpins the importance of music education. Completely. Are you not living proof of that? Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean, that's, it's a, it's well, a thing I feel pretty on, passionately um, about. You, yeah. you, by which I mean you pursued it. I mean, those moments changed the direction that I took in my life completely, and... I think for the better. I hope for the better. But um, yeah, absolutely. I, um, Where, what, what direction were you going to take then? I mean, I was always pushing towards music. I mean, so I was a. I had quite a traditional English music. Upbringing. I was a chorister in Worcester Cathedral when right. I was a kid, and then sang in cathedral choirs and things after that. And uh, I was in a, a private school where music was quite. Um, I mean, quite traditional music was was very dominant. Um, but I had I had realised. Quite, quite early on in that when exposed to things like Ligeti and uh, Stockhausen and, and, and these people I realised that, that that stuff was going to take me in a different direction so I guess it was kind of happening along the way anyway when but you make it so that makes me think that you were introduced to Stockhausen before your GCSE music around the same around the really? same time yeah, yeah. but wow. partly who, because who I was a bit of a nerd so <laughs> in you music, don't need to apologise for it no, I think it's, it's not really yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but who how did you come to be introduced to Stockhausen uh, that I I couldn't tell you exactly I remember no I remember finding that was it in the in the attic of the music department in my school there was a massive pile of vinyl records that were just completely ignored and untouched and yes. irrelevant by that stage because uh, couldn't there were no record players anywhere in the music department or anything like that so um, they were just sitting in some boxes but a friend of mine Matt and I we, we found them and ended up pouring through them and our teacher was nice enough to let us just take piles of them home with us and uh, play them on our parents record players wow. so we uh, I think we discovered some stuff and had no clue what was going on it was just weird and exciting and and I wonder and, uh, whether there was an element of because we had a similar music library at school yeah um where I was <laughs> I have some of those records at home they mm. don't realize that um <laughs> but I think I do too in fact, <laughs> yeah. in fact a lot of Wagner now I come to think of it yeah um, okay. and it took me years before I discovered Wagner but I remember looking at the covers and thinking how bizarre some of the covers were. Yeah, my assumption some of those eighties Stockhausen's cover would be really, really bizarre and strangely compelling. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't, I can't picture a, a Stockhausen cover that I saw, but I'm sure there was something, some kind of maybe like a there's a cover with a prism on it that has some, some kind of like eightiesy uh, more than likely um, uh, what, design thing going what on. What did you? Remember. What were your impressions of how is he important? What were your impressions of Stockhausen? Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, at that point, he wasn't 
I couldn't say he was what, that important other than he seemed completely bizarre and it was exciting that that there were pieces that involved helicopters and yes. <laughs> like uh, you know all sorts of, all, all this, uh, uh, to be honest I don't think I was that excited by his music particularly at the time but just the possibilities that his music showed me that, that I hadn't seen before in music he struck me as how I came to Stockhausen late yeah. but he struck me as someone who had as wild an imagination as John Cage exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I always felt that it was his imagination rather than an actual performance. It was more the imagination. Just the idea really, that, yeah, that, exactly. that it exists. Yeah, and, and the, not least the helicopter, helicopter string quartet, the yeah, idea that you have so much money that you'd put them all in helicopters and then somehow really struggle to get the sound back Somehow make a performance yeah. out of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the th- I, I guess that, yeah, it is, it's the imagination and the idea that, that excited me more because especially not long after that, I discovered the whole like, Fluxus um, text piece thing i mean i guess that was at university that 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 came to be a thing for me probably martin harry introduced me um but that the idea that a piece is 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 already a piece if it's been imagined kind of the the the, you know these sort of four four lines of of uh of poetry more or less that that suggest the situation in a place that could be completely impossible to actually do you know, the, I mean, the famous ones are like pushing a piano through a wall or locking the audience out and frustrating them to the point of, of uh, <laughs> complete rage and then letting them into the concert hall <laughs> after a few hours or whatever. Like these, these ideas, uh, that, that really excited me, the fact that, that, that um, yeah, this, this, uh, th- that a piece could be just an imagination of, of something, whether it's possible or not, uh, that expresses... So does something it then creates okay. a feeling. See, see what you've done. See what you've done. You got me. Got me all charged up. Does that mean that the feeling. piece <laughs> is um, exists in the imagination of the composer, mm. or it only exists in the imagination of the person reading about the piece? Do you get me? Yeah, I mean that. I mean, if you're if you're reading a, a a text piece, that it's it's happening in in you as a you're you're an audience member reading that. But that, it that only piece, exists. But it only exists when the audience member participates in it. Or by reading it, it exists. Yes. Yeah. I think okay. so. So by imagining the situation in which a performer pushes a piano through a brick wall, that that is the yes. You're you're experiencing the piece by imagining it, and that that it makes it a whole lot cheaper. Doesn't oh, it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It means you don't have to stay. Yeah, yeah, you can stay at home as well. You just <laughs> yeah. just read it at home. It's easy. Going to be tricky to put it on the radio. Yeah. But, but anyway, um, yeah, I think your point about yeah the imagination of Stockhausen rather than the music itself was the thing that excited me at that point eventually I came into kind of enjoying the music in, in a different way when I started to understand it a little bit more but um, yeah yeah, I think it was the the, the explosion of possibilities um, that happened to me at that point uh, I didn't expect to ask yeah. all of this but I hope so I hope you don't mind no, me great. I um, thought about I, uh, I'm also really interested in yeah. um, what does a composition lecture a lecture in I don't understand what they're going to tell you. Well, yeah, I mean... Talk me through that one. <laughs> I think I was quite... I, I don't know about most, but I was quite lucky in having... I mean, Martin Harry was my main composition lecturer, and, and I remember the first the first lecture that he did, I think it was pretty unpopular with most of the students in my year. There were a few of us who were excited by it, but not, not that many, and it, it was more or less just a... He ran through the 20th century picking out pieces and playing us things without really commenting on any of them, just showing... A range of of what is possible in sound and what what can be um, 
what can be considered music. They, he more or less immediately threw the question at us of, uh, yeah, what, what can be... The John Cage question, like, everything right. can be music, what, what is... What is a musical sound? All of this kind of stuff, and uh, and that wasn't received very well by some of the more traditional focused people in my right. yeah yeah possibly. Right. But um, but then for, I mean for and the rest the of first, the time he, he that was, was the first lecture. that was the first lecture. He yeah. went in hard, and it was wonderful. <laughs> I loved it. After the first year, everybody who didn't like that stuff could leave, and, and the rest right. of us just carried on. And after that, I mean, it's he was more or less someone who reacted to what we were interested in, and. I mean, we were writing pieces the whole time, or small kind of. There would be workshops with different ensembles or soloists. So, so or it wasn't sort of. Um, it wasn't directive. It was more in, inspiring and sort of guiding and mentoring. Yeah, exactly. After okay. the, I mean, the first year was kind of a, a directive thing, maybe kind of a. a this is the, the scope of what is happening in composition at this point. Um, or what has happened in the last you know, 50, 60 years and where things are going now, kind of. Uh, but after that, it was, yeah, it was very focused on what are you interested in, in, in exploring, how do we refine your ideas, how could you maybe um, express your ideas better, not just uh, in terms of presenting them as a score to some musicians who can make sense of it better, but in terms of how do you achieve your musical aims more. Um, and yeah, it was quite what did you find was the biggest challenge of that? I mean, for me, it was uh, it was always rigor in terms of presentation. Yeah, I'd have all these exciting ideas that he would he would encourage, and uh, uh, the the result in my head was always very clear. But the getting to the result, the, the, so the, translating the, it into something that was performable. Yeah, exactly. The depth of, of detail that you needed to put into a score to actually achieve the things. Because, yeah, like I said, I was I was doing a lot of free improvisation stuff before I went to university and then during university as well. Which he played a big role in as well. He introduced me to Rodri Davies, who um, is a harpist, Welsh harpist, who works a lot in, which was in London a lot back in the day. And uh, yeah, I ended up playing with him and a few other people um, doing a lot of free improv concerts. And so to me, it seemed very possible to just have this fantastical idea and just deliver it somehow without much thought between the idea and the delivery. Because you're delivering it in the moment. Yeah. That, I mean, that's essentially so. I was used to is. exactly. I was used to the to being around people who would be willing to just go for it and uh, like have a have a painting as a score or whatever, and be like, okay, we have this yeah. rough idea of where we're going. Um, but he, I mean, when we were doing workshops with string quartets or uh, with, I remember we did one with the Chroma Ensemble, who were kind of a quartet for the end of time set up. Um, like he would, yeah, that. It was completely invaluable what he taught me at that point because I've ended up using it. I mean, speaking of Johan, more or less everything that I ended up doing with Johan on his music came from uh, what I learnt from Martin in terms of the, the possibilities of creating something precise in a score that also leaves room for expression from the player. So I remember the yeah, it was in that first year that. Um, Everybody had to go to his classes. We had to do. We were learning about Lutislavsky and le- learning about um, creating cells, which kind of repeat in free time whilst other temporal material is happening. And players have some elements of choice in what they do, but they have some some things set. Right. And this was an idea I hadn't really seen before when he introduced it to me, and it's ended up being. It, everything rules. they've done, like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> everything. Some rules, but not complete. Exactly, yeah, but yeah, give, giving this space for a, for a performer to interpret more than just 
an interpretation of you know a, a traditional score where there is a lot of space, obviously, for interpretation. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep playing Beethoven or whatever. But um, giving a bit more space for a performer to put their their individual feeling into a, a piece of material to benefit from that performer's musicianship and that, their personality, uh, whilst also giving them a clear direction to go in. So kind of reining in free improvisation to uh, to a, to some extent. And I can see how that would be a challenge. And that's yeah. that, because mm. if you're if that's your natural state, if improvisation is your natural state, then having to sort of it's almost like relearning or having mm. to unlearn things or slow the process down. Which mm-hmm. then makes me think of was it Soundloom? Yeah. When were you introduced? To, so, which year? Was the I same didn't expect to go into this much no, detail. No, it's but great. I'm loving it. It's all fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, which year were you introduced to Sam? Same, same year, I believe, as as that first year of university. So, eighteen. You talked, 19, when yeah. you talked about Sandloom, you talked about how um, it was it was going into a lot of detail and taking loads of time. Yeah. Which would be completely the opposite yeah. of improvisation. It was an interesting balance between the, the two, really. But I mean, yeah, it, it goes into a lot of detail, but the results that you can get out you have the same there's still some space around you don't know exactly what you're going to get out right you, you set so you take a as in trevor's case you take a recording of a whiskey bottle being opened you know what the process is you have to put that sound through and you can set certain parameters in any num- like any level of detail that you want how that process will affect that sound but ultimately you're still throwing it into something and you don't totally know what's going to come out of that so there's still this kind of space of, uh, of um, chance involved but then it's working with with what, you, the, I mean the sound loom process was always quite addictive because you put a sound into a process you come out with a result and then you have that sound you can put it through another yeah, process yeah, yeah, and it yeah. goes on and on and on, and on. Yeah, there, there, there is still this, uh, this area of you don't quite know what the result is going to be you have a feeling that it could go in this direction but there's still a chance to be surprised by the thing that comes out of it and that's it's like you're putting it through a mincer yeah pretty much yeah exactly a mincer that has like <laughs> 300 different options <laughs> for how yeah. to mince your uh, okay, yes. your meat I'm not whatever. sure the analogy necessarily lasts it will last <laughs> too much longer can't push it too far maybe no, no but. Uh, uh, that's interesting yeah. so uh so how did you come to work with Johan? You, you talked earlier on, you yeah. referred earlier on about to working on his music, which made it sound as though you sort of collaborated on his music first. Yes, yeah. no, exactly. I, I, so I, for about, I think it was about five years, I was working, well, four or five years, I was working as an orchestrator for him, more or less. Um, I say more or less because the process was always quite flexible, um, does that mean you weren't paid? Is that what you're no, saying? No, 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 I was paid. <laughs> I was paid. Right, okay. I had no complaints about that. That's, that's all fine. Um, no, what I mean is he he was quite a... He, he was someone who... So he, he works with a lot of people who are... He worked... I mean, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. That came out of nowhere. Uh, he worked with quite a few people of a similar age to me on his projects who he would find in different ways. I mean, for me, he found me by... I mean, he put out... I was living in Berlin and... Uh, he put out an advert across this uh, this kind of arts job um, newsletter thing without his name involved, just composer seeking assistant or whatever. And I, wow. I, was, I was in Berlin looking for anything that, that my skills could provide some money because I was just playing a lot of free improv gigs and not really earning very much money. Um, and uh, so I responded to this advert. It turned out to be him, whose music I already knew and loved. Um, and started I mean the first project that he had that he needed help on was the Miners Hymns which 
I mean, I, I mentioned I think that I was at university in Durham. I spent a few years up in the northeast, and it was a project about the miners' gala in Durham. Uh, it was a, a, a film, um, a film and music live project that he needed orchestration for a version. Originally, it was a brass band. Um, piece which had happened before I met him but he, he needed an orchestration for a full orchestra to be performed um, in Iceland uh, with the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra uh, so that was the first thing um, and I ended up, I mean yeah I say I say the, the, the things that Martin Harry was teaching me these Lutoslavsky um, cells in particular came in incredibly handy immediately with working with him because his music had I mean, it always has this uh, kind of constant. Uh, there's there's a textural drone thing, pretty much always in his music. There's always some kind of element where there needs to be some freedom for the players. And he was also a musician who really wanted his mu- the musicians performing for him to have their personality in the music. So it was a really perfect match for me to come as an orchestrator. I'm not sure I would be a great orchestrator for more traditional composers to be honest but he was interested in first of all texture and timbre more than necessarily complex harmony or anything like this which chimes with me very strongly uh, but also he wanted his he, he works with he worked with ensembles in a way that he wanted their personality to come out in his music as well and so that was perfect for the kind of techniques that I was used to using and that I was using in my own music um, so yeah I ended up working with him on his music for yeah four or five years, some of his films, but more his uh, concert pieces. So there was a piece called Drone Mass that we worked on together. Uh, a lot of the choral stuff, or pe- things that involved voices in different ways, because of my choral background, he that was the thing. He was somebody who who could see people's uh, expertise, or could see where where people had particular strengths see how they could apply to what he was doing and then he would trust them to use their strengths to benefit his music you talk very highly of him yeah that's my hunch just from hearing you talk about him he was a big mentor and friend for me I mean that the period working with him uh, has completely led to a lot of stuff for me in my life and opened my mind about um yeah, about music in general. The music that I'm writing now is informed by what he was interested in, what he taught me about sound, and what what he showed me that you could do with, um, particularly with simplicity. I think before that, I'd been very focused on a lot of stuff happening all the time and pushing things in a very extreme way all the time. And um, and how did yeah. that, how did that change of um, change of viewpoint for you? How did that come about? Uh, my, assumption, my assumption is he said, no, don't do that. But, but yeah. maybe, was that how it was? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, no, our dynamic. This is way too heavy. Exactly. We got the money for this. That was totally our dynamic. R- r- like, r- not right, so much okay. the, the, the money, but like the listeners don't have the ears for that. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like, it's great, but... But simplify. Yeah. And okay. that, was, that was always the key. So what I think what he liked about me and what I would suggest in terms of his music was that I would push things into a slightly dirtier or more extreme textural direction from what he had originally planned. dirtier textural direction. Yeah, what does that mean? Um, I need details. So like, he often had moments in the music that he'd, he would come to me with, with kind of almost finished music that wasn't necessarily, wasn't decided what instruments necessarily would, would fit. He was a very like studio-based composer who would come up with, this is kind of roughly the sound that I want to achieve 
I don't really know exactly where these instruments like we have this orchestra I don't totally know exactly what instruments you'd have a pretty clear idea but there would be a lot of space um, and I would often come back with especially when I first started working with him I'd come back with these quite extreme ligety-ish scores with you know celli divided completely individually so you'd have you know 12 celli doing different lines at the same time and all this kind of stuff <laughs> yeah exactly I'd turn up with all this nonsense <laughs> someone's on a power trip and you'd be like hang on you could just, couldn't, couldn't we just have like them all play a low C like the same thing yeah. <laughs> oh yeah no hang on you're right that would actually sound really good sorry I spent a week on that but fine let's get rid of it that's okay that's cool <laughs> no problem um, uh, and you didn't have a problem with that? No, because... Because I haven't had that... The reason I'm asking is because I haven't had that experience. Yeah. I don't know. And because if you're if you're working on something creative, then surely to a certain extent you are personally investing in it. Yeah, and absolutely. then have someone else go along and go, actually, no, <laughs> do this. Is that not difficult? It was initially difficult. Initially I thought that he was trying to be too simple with his music and it was, you know, it wasn't smart enough or something. And then I realised that that was, I mean he had the experience in how that in the jump between a score and what is actually experienced in the room he had a lot more experience obviously yes. and uh, then I, I realised that by by going to the performances and being involved in, in the rehearsals and things and seeing the results that he got out from the more simple stuff that we ended up with but I think the, the dynamic of me throwing something really complex at him him simplifying it down quite a lot but not totally led to the, the, the final result being he, a lot more interesting. He edited you. That's yeah, what he did. Exactly. But, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, how much Sorry. of him of how much of him is there in Now the Hero? Because it is billed as you having at some point worked with him on it. That's yeah. slightly confusing about the billing. It's I mean it's difficult so we started the piece together, but we hadn't got to the stage of writing anything on a score by the time that, that he died. Um, so we'd spent we'd spent I mean, maybe a year talking about it and sending kind of pretty abstract ideas back and forward. We'd been to Swansea together just once, but I'd been a few times while he was still alive and sent him the recordings that I made while I was there. Um, but he died in a moment that where we were really just about to start putting notes on the page. <laughs> so in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, the stage, what I had at the point that he died, what I had from him he spent maybe three or four hours playing the organ in Swansea coming up with ideas when I wasn't there and we had another hour or so of, of the two of us playing the organ together uh, I had a lot of conversations and a lot of email exchanges with with plans and and uh, I mean basically we ended up with the, the key thing that, that I kept in the process of, of making the piece was this phrase which is a little bit cheesy but actually really does underline the influence that he had on the piece there was the phrase beauty in chaos um, which I think actually underlines a lot of his music in general but uh, the point was that for the to, to support Mark Reese's uh, interpretation of the poem and the, his idea for the piece in general, the whole theatrical piece I mean um, there's the, our aim was to create some kind of optimism within a feeling of tragedy so that th this phrase beauty in chaos was what we wanted to that we wanted to apply to all of the different bits of music we made for all of the scenes but particularly the requiem um, and then I mean so I took that uh, 
and I began when I was like the, the beginning process of writing was very difficult because it wasn't that long after he died I was still very much in the, a grieving state of mind and uh, I was trying I found myself initially very much trying to make his kind of music which which doesn't actually but suit me that well I mean and I understood you, and, and also you had been commissioned as you you were the composer I, this. Well, it, or was so it a collaboration what was interesting initially it was the first time that he'd come to me and been like let's compose something together on an equal okay, footing right. um, which it was partly a practical thing for him because he had a million film scores to finish and blah, blah, blah. He had a lot going on. But it was also, we had worked on quite a few things that involved voices and choral music uh, in the past. Also, he, we'd had a lot of conversations about Wales and Welsh music because I have Welsh family who are all involved in the like, male voice choir tradition, which he was really fascinated by. Like I told him, I sent him once a video of my uncle's male voice choir performing... Uh, Oh yeah, no. It's uh, I sent him a video of them doing a cover of Joy Division, which they did for this festival that happens in Wales. I think it's called Festival Number no. Six. It happens in Port Merion in in North Wales. Uh, they they have this beautiful video. It's on YouTube. You should mm-hmm. check it out. It's incredible. Uh, it's my my uncle's choir doing a, a Joy. Di- Wait, sorry, not Joy Division. New Order. Got to get it right. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> even so, yeah. even so, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so well, I sent him that. The most he, unlikely he thing to <laughs> yeah. expect. So he, yes. he, I mean, he absolutely loved that. But in general, I sent, I, I talked to him a lot about the, the like Welsh choral tradition and and how singing in Wales is is this kind of there's this extra. Um, no, meaning to, to, to singing in Wales. And, um, singing doesn't need to be sold in Wales. Yeah, it? yeah, exactly. Done. It's just yeah. whereas the rest of the country is like, yeah, whatever. Singing. Whatever yeah, is part yeah. of music. It's a, yeah, um, and he was really fascinated by this. I think, as an Icelander, they a lot of the Icelanders that I know have an interest in Wales as a place. I think there's some kind of connection. I don't mm. know what it is. I mean, for me, the languages actually sound kind of the same, but um, that's maybe offensive to some people. Um, but yeah, anyway, we talked a lot about Wales, and, and also he saw me as his choir guy, basically, as well. So he wanted me involved, but then decided that we would do this yeah, composing together, which was a huge opportunity for me, uh, especially as we had a period just before that where we hadn't really worked together for a little while. Um, like, the last project we'd done before that hadn't really gone that well, and we had a, uh, I was trying to do some other things, and he was busy with his films, which he didn't tend... I mean, I worked on some of his films, but... I wasn't one of the guys that he got really involved in his films as much as others. Um, so we'd had a bit of a maybe five or six month period where we hadn't done much together, and I think it was him kind of going, "Let's let's come back together, let's make something, um, and let's do it. Let's work a different way. Let's uh, create together fully rather than you edit my thing." And uh, and yeah. And how did I don't want to? I I, I get the, I, it's obvious rather from the internet, but. That his departure was a tremendous shock for everybody, and and people yeah, were yeah. I, I didn't really want to touch on that because it it's seems okay. terribly, yeah. terribly personal. But what I'm interested in is how did, um, how did his departure change how you approached this particular project? Did it change at all, or did you? Were you thinking actually no? I'm still composing with him, even though he's not here. It was. I mean, that was the thing. So I started with a bit more of this. I tried to write something that we would have written together, but I realized relatively quickly that that was, well, first of all, emotionally impossible <laughs> and mm-hmm. and also compositionally impossible. I mean, the the, the way that it would have happened had he, uh, had he been alive for the whole thing um, 
would would have been that he probably would have brought the beauty and I would have brought the chaos. <laughs> like that's kind of we we were excited to work in that way together. Um, so for me, it was a challenge to because obviously the Mark and the the people who who began this piece had imagined Johann's music initially. Johann had brought me in as as an extra person who they didn't know, but were happy to trust on Johann's word and so I felt a pressure to create something that was somewhat close to what we might have done together but in the end the I mean the, yeah the, the first months were very difficult because I was trying to create something that we would have created together and then I realized that that wouldn't be that wouldn't have been what he wanted me to do in this context uh, like the reason he got me involved is that he wanted me to to have a chance to express more my thing as well and he was someone who supported people uh, in in yeah in chasing their their ideas and following them through helping them do that but um, so so yeah the result I think uh, represents a lot more what I learned from him without it being actually what we would have done together so there's a lot he's there in all of it for me but it might not be completely super clear to the audience members that it's that connected to Johan. I mean, I think I think you will hear some elements of him. Harmony-wise, I've, I've really tried to focus on the sort of harmony we might have used, but the result of the way that I use that harmony is, is more blurred and is a little bit more abstract and is a little bit more, um, yeah, um, maybe textural than harmonic-focused because that's my interest in general. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it strikes sense. me that it does make sense, total sense. It strikes me that it must surely have been extremely. It turned out to be an extremely challenging project to work on. Absolutely, because of what yeah. happened. Completely, I, it's, um, I've never really experienced anything like it. It's, no. uh, it. I didn't know. I mean, at the point after he died, I, I spoke with Mark and with the, the other people involved in the project, and they asked me if I was like okay to to carry on. And I, at the time, thought absolutely. I mean, it's important me to do it for him obviously mm -hmm. um, and it didn't occur to me that quite what uh, an emotional impact it would have I mean I knew that obviously his death would have a big emotional impact on me but in terms of writing the music I didn't know that it would create a, a, a block like I've never experienced <laughs> and, a block. Uh, like a creative block that I've, I've not experienced before it, it meant every single tiny decision I felt like he was kind of there watching and I was wondering if he would be happy with that decision and uh, uh, so what was the turning point if there was a block what was the turning point the how turning, did you get over it the turning point was realising that he would want me to do what I thought was the right thing for the project and uh, and he would want me to explore my ideas fully whilst also thinking about um, what he sort of showed me. I mean, this is the thing I mentioned before, simplicity, the, the thing where he edited my crazy ligaty versions down to, to something that was a lot more simple and, and, and playable. real. <laughs> yeah, playable, yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, that's the, the yeah, exactly, the playable thing is important. What's because the point in writing something people can't play? Exactly, what, what he showed me really, the biggest thing he showed me was that the thing the, the 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 gap between what you make in a score and what you can do in a period of rehearsals with some people in a room to create a thing that really exists uh, and for that what he showed me was that the that creating the score in the most simple way possible maybe reining in some of your crazy ideas to to make them a little bit more relatable to to actual humans who play instruments <laughs> um, 
and then working with those people in a room to make those things um, like sing in the way that you imagine them in the first place is actually a lot more effective than writing some crazy complex score that, that people are going to have to grapple with and not be able to put their full first of all their full playing or singing ability into but also put their full personality into um, if that makes sense yes. so so that th- th- yeah there was a moment where I realised okay I need to do what I actually I, I need to stop thinking about every single decision as Johan and me making a decision what would Johan decide in this moment it became Johan would want me to make my decision in this moment but um, it it needs to be something that is relatable and has a direct emotional connection rather than is this over thought through uh, kind of abstract conceptual thing you know have you seen um, you must have seen rehearsals have have you seen it all go to you're looking at me like you're saying because it's on the 25th exactly yeah yeah. we're working with polyphony who are a wonderful choir uh, obviously and Stephen Layton but obviously being such a wonderful choir they don't have that much time available so maybe they don't need time maybe maybe what we're saying is they can just turn up I'm pretty I mean I've already had the experience of them not needing time like the I mentioned this recording session we had earlier in the year for the for the electronic stuff that I, can't, I turned up having this was right in the middle of the I'm still undecided as to how I approach Johan's so, that, so he this. had died at that point this he had died yeah it was wait no it was a bit later it was about two oh. months after he died so okay. it must have been yeah, sort of April time so getting those original those original sketches that you talked about initially mm. that was after he died yeah exactly right. but, okay. but pretty that was the first sort of step after he died in terms of the project uh, that was Super difficult. I was really confused as to what I actually wanted mm. to get out of it. I I, came, I turned up with some. Actually, actually, I did turn up with a, a score that we'd worked on together. It was a quiet thing that we'd been before the Swansea project. We'd been sending back and forth just as a this can be something at some point. We're not sure what it is. Idea. So I took one score that we'd worked on together, and then it was maybe four or five. Um, yeah, quite open sketches that that involved the singers repeating things, but but changing how they repeat things based on their own decisions. I turned up for this session feeling very uh, terrified about what I'd created and having not having a clue whether it was going to result in what I was hoping for. Not really sure what I was hoping for exactly. Uh, and the the singers from Polyphony were incredible they grabbed it straight away and they made complete sense of it, they put themselves into it completely and immediately put a lot of musicianship into the material that I turned up with and it was that point actually coming back from that session um, that was where the the turning point kind of was with right, okay, I, I kind of know where I've done that, I've delivered it I want to take this okay, actually and, right. and that you was had the, given yourself permission yeah, exactly, and that's where I felt kind of I can move on from Johan, like from from thinking about every single thing that Johan would have done in this situation, yes. and being like, okay, this is what I would do, and that's what Johan would, would want me to do. Uh, speaking moment. as a composer, as yeah. in you, not me, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, is the process of writing something for somebody not the most nerve-wracking thing that you could possibly do? You mean because it makes perfect sense in your head, and then you write it down on a piece of paper, uh, and then you give it to somebody else. That surely in that transaction. Um, there's got to be a bit of your mind that's going. What will they think of me? Oh, absolutely. Is no, it, yeah, am I right about that? Completely. I'd not. But <laughs> why would you do that? I don't understand why you do that. <laughs> I mean, I 
it's something I hadn't experienced as intensely. Uh, uh, I mean, I haven't experienced it as intensely before this project. Actually, this is the first project where it's a really exposing felt. process, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And I think, I mean, maybe I had some kind of ego before where I didn't worry about it or I thought I knew best or whatever but somehow in this project it's it's become a real uh, a real thing where everything that I send um, I'm, I'm really concerned about how how that is going to be represented but but the point is I mean we talked about all this uh, writing in a way that allows the personality of the performer to come through that's a bit the reason that I'm interested in writing in that way is that I don't feel as a composer that I have the right to dictate absolutely everything that happens because I mean in this context I'm actually playing I'm playing the organ as well but in general you're not playing you're you're so you're adopting, a, you're adopting a very modest stance then good performers would say when say performing um, Schubert or Beethoven or what have you that um, if you question them about to what extent is their ego on the platform they'll say oh well it's not about me it's about what the composer yeah. intended mm-hmm. actually what you're Maybe saying maybe we're just trying to put it off on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what, what you're saying is, is that you, do, you, you don't want to dictate to people so exactly who is responsible for the music yeah I mean maybe none of us want responsibility completely distancing themselves from the performance yeah I mean obviously as a composer you do have a lot of responsibility for what happens in the like there's no point in, in um, pretending that that's not what you're wanting to do when you're writing a piece obviously you do want to you have a, an image of what uh, what a performance should be like and what an audience's experience should be like but for me and maybe that's just from from the kind of music I've been exposed to along the way but for me it, it, it doesn't make total sense to work with uh, work with musicians who, who have really their own personality and their like incredible abilities and not try to let their abilities and personality show through and not let them make decisions themselves to some extent I mean yeah you can go too far with that and it can create chaos and it it, it ends up being nonsense quite easily because especially if you're working with musicians who are very within the the kind of um, the classical or the contemporary music scene who are used to being given every tiny detail they're, they're used to having to to recreate every tiny detail in a complex, you know, like a Fernio score or whatever. They they're used to making the athletics that they have to make. You know, to uh, there, there's something that you're something. saying that makes me think of playwrights. Obviously, you will have worked with Owen Shears on this. Yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I have a playwright friend of mine who talks about how when she's written the script. Uh, and then she sits down with a director in rehearsals. Mm. That is the worst time for her because actually suddenly this thing that she has worked on for months and months is now no longer hers. Yeah. The director is going, no, we're going to cut that, we'll change this, we'll do that. Yeah, I mean, tricky, is that, I is that yeah. your experience as a composer, as a writer? Because you're effectively the, you know... I mean, it's, it's a similar situation, definitely, but, I mean, for, for most of the things I've ended up being involved in, it... it has been a case of we've been planning for this moment to be something where the piece is actually finished, kind of. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about that transaction yeah. between you're saying that you yeah. you want to give people, you want to give singers, performers, the opportunity to put their own s- stamp on it. That wasn't really what you said. No, yeah, yeah, loosely, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that that does rather presume that in that transaction, when your work is being picked over by the performer and suggestions are being mm. offered you, that you're okay with the suggestions coming to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, has that always been the case? It's been the case for most of my adult music life, but that's a bit the the thing that 
I mentioned with what Johan showed me is is that this moment in rehearsals with the people that are going to play the music in the space is actually more important than I had thought before I worked with him about actually not not just in terms of refining something but actually really that's the moment that the piece is created finally like you've you've created a score that is a plan but it's just a plan and that there are elements that that you're going to want to change once you realize how those individuals especially with singers I mean because we with Johan's music we worked with very different kinds of singers and like I mean for this project we're working with Polyphony who I mean uh like I, I know the like the yeah the choir uh, tradition that that they're connected to they um yeah, wait, what am I trying to say? Sorry, I might have to edit this. <laughs> I got a bit lost what I'm saying. No, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but but to that's a, what, what I'm interested in, in you telling me about that, is that um, the, if you like, traditional, conventional narrative that is given to most punters like me about mm. composers is that um, composers are all seeing and all doing and they are all controlling. And exactly. whatever they put on the paper, yeah. that is what they intended what they intended and there might even be this other thing that they didn't put on the paper that musicologists all pour over and go, Oh well, he intended this and mm. this was influenced by this, that and the other. Mm. Actually what you're saying is that mm, it's a plan and the plan is subject to change. Yeah. Um, where, where has that where has that change of thinking happened? Do you think? I mean, I think it was given to me pretty early on. I mean, we talked about the about Martin Harry and my early composition tutoring there. It was there already. Is kind it a twentieth like so century shift? Oh, I see. In terms of the history of composition, you mean? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think because it became a lot more open in the twentieth century. People were more willing to 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 show the fact that. That, yeah, that there's this gap between the score and what the actual music is, but uh, presumably because of avant-garde composers, yeah, like Reich and Cage, yeah, exactly. Where where it was clear when you look at the score, there is there is still stuff to be decided in the yes. moment when it's yeah. happening, uh, particularly with Cage, obviously. But um, yeah, uh, it makes me think of TV production teams where no one person is is completely responsible mm. for the output. And I used to hate that. Yeah, because I just used to think you want no, someone to blame. To, yeah, <laughs> there needs to be one person. Who is the one? But why? Person? Why does there need to be one person? Because what? I need leadership. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's probably why. It might probably. be my socialism coming yeah, through. Yeah, here, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> this whole sort of liberal collaboration thing. I can't be going with it. Nonsense. Okay. Um, uh, so, will you be there for all of the performances, or are you just going to go for the first one? Oh, I'm there you because go? I'm playing the organ. Oh, okay. I'm going right. to be playing the organ with my friend and other collaborator, Paul Frick, right? Who's a composer and an electronic musician from Germany. He's mm-hmm. in a, I mean, some people might know the Brandt Brauer Frick Ensemble. They're a they're kind of an electronic music group who have expanded to doing um, stuff with a small chamber ensemble. Who I also some orchestration for back in the day I was also a backing singer for one of their tours okay right uh, it was right. quite fun um, so yeah there's two of us going to play the organ I mean you didn't sheepishly introduce that that does suggest that you liked being a backing singer I absolutely loved it it was one of my <laughs> one of my favourite music I got to wear really colourful jackets and okay. dance and stuff and okay. uh, it wasn't my comfort zone exactly, but uh, I was into it. Well, I, was I don't. Fun. I don't. Think that <laughs> it you became are my comfort zone eventually. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you looking forward to the process? Are you looking forward to the performances? Oh, absolutely! It's been. I mean, it's been quite a long process preparing for it. So I'm a little bit desperate at this stage to get in the space and, and hear it. I mean, I've got a week or so of uh, 
organ time with all the so I, I'm not sure if I really explained that the the requiem piece also has a lot of electronic elements so there's still quite a lot to be figured out in the in the final process of uh, of putting it together like the organ will be processed and amplified as well the choir will be processed and amplified as well during the requiem so there's still um, elements that I have imagined but haven't heard yet so I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing them ultimately oh, that really frightens me yeah <laughs> me too a little bit but i sort of live off that <laughs> so it's thanks to owen roberts for participating in this podcast now the hero runs from the 25th to the 29th of september details on who those organizations and the institutions are that help support now the hero are included in the show notes please rate like share subscribe to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast on Spotify, iTunes or Audioboom. Get in contact with me by emailing john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me or following Thoroughly Good on Twitter. You can also find Thoroughly Good on Facebook. Basically, Thoroughly Good is everywhere. Uh, and don't forget to support the Thoroughly Good Podcast and blog by donating from the blog homepage at thoroughlygood.me. Thanks very much for listening.